Welcome back to the flip side, folks. Galen Clavio here, along with Brian Moritz. There he is. Uh, we are back after a little bit of an extra hiatus. Uh, Brian, you were unfortunately not around uh, for a bit of last week, but you had a very good reason to be, and and uh, we we're sorry to welcome you back, mostly because of the mental state that it will now have you in. I was going to say it wasn't unfortunate for me that I was away. I, we were uh, we, we took a, about a ten day vac- family vacation. Uh, took our daughter to New York City for the first time, and uh, then spent a week with some college friends up in the Lake George, Lake Placid area of the Adirondacks, and it was awesome. It was just a great trip. Um, nice. Crammed everything you could into New York City in one day. Um, my kid, who we talked about on here, does theater. We got did a behind the basically a behind the scenes tour of wicked. And so you get to go in the theater and you get to see a lot of the original costumes and stuff. And she just loved that. Cool. Um, and then hiked the mountain, but my kid climbed the, I, I and my kid and my wife uh, climbed up a mountain and not a fake mountain, like an actual mountain with a, with a thing on the peak on it. I mean, okay. Actual mountain. It was 3,300 feet. So it is actually a mountain. It's not like, Oh, we drove up a hill and hiked up a trail and Hey, we're on top of a mountain. We actually went start to finish. Now, if you're listening to this in like Colorado or Utah, I know you're probably saying, oh, that's cute. But um, for a first time out and for my daughter being six, we're re- we were really proud of that. And, the, and it was a it was a really good day. So, I mean, you um, can be, you know, I mean, you people in New York are all at sea level. You know, I mean, you know, the 3300 yeah. foot mountains, not that bad. I mean, you could be in Colorado climb an 8,500 foot mountain and you'd really only have climbed about 3,300 feet because you're starting at a mile up. Yeah. Right. And this, that's what it was like. I think our sense, I measured it in my Fitbit was like, we went up 1,700 feet from where, from start of the trail to the, to the top, to the top of the mountain. And I mean, I mean, we were feeling, I mean, and it was a, there was a bit of actual climbing involved too. It wasn't just just a straight hike, but uh, I feel like I did seventeen hundred feet up on my run today. Ugh. Really? No, it's not. It's, it's been a rough, uh, rough time from a walking around perspective since this morning. But, so little, uh, little muggy out there in uh, in India. No, just just a, just a, just the legs kind of got a little too much work in. I think it, it has been very muggy. We had um, we had ridiculously humid temperatures here for several days. It's it's nicer outside today, um, but. Uh, oh, okay. I, you know, we had our first really like long spell of awful summer weather from a, a humidity perspective. So, anyway, uh, lots of so. things that we want to get to today, and um, we'll just go ahead and just dive right into them, I guess. Uh, yeah. First wait, wait, of all, well, let me mention. Let yeah, me mention please. one thing uh, that I did over the weekend on my vacation, as you do. Um, and this is at the request of friend of the show, Shannon McCarthy, who asked for this. And I put together, and I will put this in show notes too, uh, a spreadsheet: the the beers of the flip side. And yes. so it is a nearly comprehensive list of every beer that we've had uh, on this show. There are a couple episodes where I didn't note them in the show notes, so I actually have to go back and listen to them uh, to get that information. But if you want to know, they have beer, t- beer name, brewery, who drank it, what episode. If I get creative, maybe I'll add some notes or our untapped ranking or a link or something like that. Um, but if you're ever curious of the beers we, we drank back when we were young and did this at night, uh, that will be available to you. So. I will add to the show a beer that I had yesterday that uh, oh, please do. I, I thought was worth mentioning. So it was the the Prickly Pear APA from Tin Man Brewing Company. Uh, I have had that. That's excellent. It's it's good stuff. Uh, it yeah. is, and I, so I would, I would recommend that to anybody. 
I'll try to do that more here. I, since, since it is a little bit questionable to drink beer at one o'clock on a Monday afternoon when you have to work the rest of the day, we'll right. we'll try to bring stuff from the weekend in, and, and right. I might have a better arrangement of things at that point. Right. I have to find the brand name for this, and I can do that while you introduce our first topic and say it later. But we, I got introduced to Spike Seltzer on this weekend's trip. Um, and you mean, you mean like alcoholic or Lacroix? Yeah, absolutely. Alcoholic yeah. LaCroix. And um, it's wonderful. Like, it's, you know, for the sitting by the pool on a warm day, beer is a little too heavy when the sun is out, but Zima's too... Zima. Right. It's it it really it really does work well. So I'll find the uh, I'll find the, the the brand that we were that I was having, but it had lime flavor, had cranberry flavor. Not mixed. That'd be weird, but it seemed to work well. I really enjoyed that. So yeah. All right. Let me see if um, I can find that. All right. So anyway, uh, let's get to some of the topics we were going to talk about today. Um, first and foremost, uh, it's been a rough summer for uh, certain media outlets on the sports side, and and uh, we definitely had some more bad news uh, that came in this past week. I think it was right before the weekend hit mm-hmm. that Vice Sports, uh, which had really you know been kicking for a few years. Uh, I think Patrick Ruby was the the editor um, mm-hmm. for, for that, but they announced that they were ceasing operations as a as a, a writing entity, they were going to, to shift to video. Stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> um, so I guess Vice Sports at this point is basically no more. Um, mm-hmm. what, what are your thoughts on this? Because uh, it's it's not as cut and dried as, say, the Fox Sports thing was, where it's like, well, you know, here's a major entity that is just deciding to lay off a bunch of its writing staff. Like, this was this was a relatively new entity that was doing things that weren't really being done in a lot of other spaces. Yeah, I was bummed out when I saw this. I mean, I'm a huge Patrick Ruby fan. He's spoken in my classes. I've had him on my on my writing podcast. Just a really good guy, really good thinker. I think kind of an, I think an important voice in sports journalism. And I do like a lot of the stuff that Vice had been doing. And so I was bummed out when I saw this. Um, when with the whole kind of like pivot to video, it feels to me in a weird way, like, like Fox doing it, you know, it was like the giving permission for everybody else to do it. Like Fox did it. And so now we can pivot to video and, and you can kind of go along with that. And not that it's not a bigger part of, you know, the media strategies that we've talked about in the past few weeks, but it is starting to feel kind of more like, Hey, now we can pivot to video because that's where the industry's headed because like a couple websites have done it. And so it kind of becomes almost to me in a way like a self, uh, a self-perpetuating trend. Um, I mean, I mean, I've said it before on, on here and at the risk of repeating myself to me, the problem isn't going to video um, I mean, we've said this, you like video. I don't like video as you know, for a lot of what we like and, you know, personal taste, notwithstanding. But if this were like a genuine reaction to user, to user demands or like a, like some sort something like that, it would feel better, but it is just starting to feel more and more like videos, cheap and easy. The videos they put up are doing are cheap and easy to put up and writing and writers cost a lot, cost more money and are expensive. So it does feel, it's starting to feel a little more, a little more cost cuttery than, you know, bold markets content strategy to me. Okay. No, that's, that may be fair. I mean, and certainly I don't know a lot of the financials behind this. I do think there's one other factor that probably should be talked about at least with vice sports, which is, 
you know, they weren't just covering sports. They were absolutely covering sports with a particular, like, social and political edge to the coverage. Uh, I mean, they had some kind of, you know, what I would call youthful commentary, which Deadspin certainly kind of mastered, you know, that corner back in the early part of this decade. But, you know, but a lot of the stories that Vice Sports would do would fit in with a lot of the stories that Vice in general does, which, you know, tend to focus on kind of leftist politics and, uh, you know, maybe underrepresented minorities and so forth within the social structure of, of the sporting world. And I do wonder, you know, is it possible that we're just seeing, we saw too many people or too much content try to jump into that space and, and the market just isn't really there? Like, it's kind of an interesting paradigm because on the one hand, if you're on like sports media Twitter, you, you, uh, you see that stuff all the time. And those are the pieces right. that get praised. Those are the pieces that get uh, talked about as being great journalism and, and, and so on and so forth. But is the market there to support that sort of work? Uh, you know, I, I tend to wonder a little bit just because it it doesn't seem like just from looking at the way audiences consume things and the way that they pass it around, it seems like it's very much not just a coastal thing, but a city sort of thing. Uh, you know, and it doesn't seem to have the same sort of broad appeal that a, a lot of other types of sports uh, content seem to have. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, it's interesting to, to think about it like that. I don't know. I just, you know, for a while, you know, it, it's, a, you know, thinking of from a sports perspective, I guess it's a pretty crowded marketplace. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about this kind of, I think, with our next topic or one of the other topics we're going to talk about with kind of like the local subscription sites that are popping up, um, which I at least think is a little more interesting on a couple different levels. But, you know, our... Hmm, how to say this? Are you going? Are, are a lot of enough people going to Vice to read sports coverage? You know, certainly in the sports media, in, in our sports circles, yeah. Like Ruby posts a piece or links to a piece, I'll give it a throw because uh, I like him and I and I kind of trust his judgment on that. Um, but you know how? You know what? I, I guess they're kind of on that leftist space on, on the sports perspective. But you know where did where does Vice? Where did Vice Sports? fit into like the greater kind of sports media online commentary dynamic you know what were, what were they doing and this isn't this is something like a criticism and, and it's not necessarily but what were they doing that that, that i can't get at deadspin what are they doing that i can't get at well, all announcing and i i know they were doing stuff but is that enough to I, to sustain a standalone sports unit within a bigger media company yeah, I think that's good. I mean, I do think they did things that were different than Deadspin. I, I yeah. thought they, they had a lot more narrative-based stuff, a lot more um, kind of um, kind of personality-based things. Not the not the writers, but the people that they covered. I mean, Deadspin mm-hmm. tends to take a very top-down approach, I think, to a lot of what they do, and and certainly there's room for that. But um, it almost, I think the big issue actually ties into the next topic we were going to talk about, which is this subscription model thing that we're seeing with, with places like the athletic or DK sports or the, um, the, the, the new one in Boston. But you know, the, one of the problems is, okay, you're going to do this politically left of center coverage. And, and certainly there's room for that, but where's the audience come from? Like, you right. know, are enough people on the net? Cause you're a nationwide 
outlet. Like you don't have a regional home necessarily. Mm -hmm. So where do people go? Like where do people come from who are going to be interested in all the things that you write about? I mean, it's basically going to be, okay, if there's something localized that you're interested in, sure, we'll focus on that. But then I'm going to probably step away from it because I won't be interested in the next five or six things that are there. Um, It's not, and you know, it's not like, you know, like Barstool Sports gets criticized a lot and, you know, understandably so, but there's a kind of a universality to, you know, dumb, dumb's the maybe too pejorative a word, but it's like fire and forget sports coverage. Like there's not a lot of nuance to what Barstool does and that's, that's part of the shtick. Um, And it's kind of universal in a way that say a story about, you know, an an underprivileged youth, like fighting the system uh, within the sports world might not be that universal. I mean, certainly among people of certain political stripes, it's universal, but I don't think that extends far outside of that particular realm. Well, and when you're, you know, and this will tie into our next topic, but when you're not a subscription service, when you're, you know, ad-based, so that is when you're ad-based, you're looking for numbers. You're looking for the most number of shares, views, you know, whatever kind of metric you're using. And, you know, the Barstool Sports is always going to probably get more numbers like that than than a piece of advice, you know, just kind of on the nature of, I, I think on the nature of it. I don't think that's a, that's a, bold take but i you know when you are kind of in a click driven metric driven i would say metric driven environment because click is derivative but a metric driven environment um and vice definitely as a you know taken as totality as vice.com is definitely kind of one of those click shared metric driven media environments where is the do you does you know do this, does their sports coverage get enough traffic to justify its existence um, and justify the expense and the, and the cost of it? And, and, you know, that's one of the, you know, one of the interesting things about the, the subscription models is I think it's trying to do an end around or take that, that aspect out of it. I mean, there are its own challenges that we're going to come up that we're going to talk about on that, but you know, it, 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 it's, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, I think, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I you, know, you never want to see young writer or an, uh, an outlet for writers. You never see want people lose their jobs. You don't want to see an outlet for sports writing go away. And you know, like Patrick Ruby is going to going to be fine. Somebody's going to hire him, and he's going to continue to do his writing, and he's and it's going to be great. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I, and, and I don't know. I, I I guess in a way, the video kind of feels more like. I don't follow vice outside of the sports a lot, but it seems like much more in line with a lot of what they do and kind of their model than some of the sports writing that they did. I don't know. I might, I might be a a flawed perception on my part. No, I mean, I think it's an interesting intersection of a lot of things that are going on right now. I mean, I think because you're right, you, you hate to see anything go away in terms of jobs. I think that you'll see, that space get filled by something else. Maybe not that particular space, but I mean, you know, the right places fail, other places start up. I mean, we've seen this cycle go for, for decades now in media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wonder, you know, it's, it's, there's, it's tempting to draw the dots and say, okay, well, this is just the shift of video things just taking everything up. And I feel like there's just a, there's probably something different underlying this one than what was underlying the Fox one, but let's switch Absolutely. over. Yeah switch over to this subscription model thing that you were talking about. So this was a big topic on the Richard Deitch uh, SI podcast from last week with Andrew Buckholtz and, and a gentleman from Boston whose name is escaping me right now. I apologize, sir. I know you're listening. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but they, they talked a lot about 
um, these sites that have popped up, which seem to be doing fairly well, which are subscription based. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, the athletic is certainly one that a lot of people have talked about. This is a site that's based out of Chicago, but they just announced last week uh, that, well, I think Tim Kawakami from the San Jose Mercury News or whatever that, that organization is called is leaving the paper and is going to start writing for that website. So they're creating like a San Francisco imprint. Uh, we've seen people laid off from like ESPN Chicago who have started working for the, the athletic in Chicago and, and from all accounts seem to be doing very well. That, that particular, uh, organization seems to have some financial backing. They claim that they're very close to breaking even in terms of the subscriber revenue. You've got DK Pittsburgh sports.com, which is actually a friend of mine, um, um, Dustin Dopirak, who used to write here in Bloomington and uh, was writing in Knoxville at the paper there, got hired there last year. And they cover Pittsburgh oh, cool. sports. They do an, uh, their, their subscription model is $3.99 a month or $30 a year or a lifetime subscription for $250. And I think the numbers quoted on the podcast were that they, they've got like 38 or 40,000 subscribers already, which adds Holy, up. That's, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. So now who now, you know, is that monthly? Is that, you know, what, like what, the, what's the breakdown? It's hard to say, but um, let me start off by saying this. I mean, there's, there's a site like this opening in Boston. There are sites elsewhere, I think that are getting going. This is not new. Um, you know, I mean, and I don't mean it's not new, even from the perspective of like newspapers and subscriptions, you know, the certain aspects of sports media tend to get overlooked by people that talk about sports media regularly because they, there's like certain lines that they draw about what's considered sports media and what is not. If you look at rivals or scout, uh, the, the message boards there have been going off of, you know, subscription models since the early two thousands. And, you know, I mean, I did my dissertation on this and I remember, you know, what was it back in, um, gosh, 2007 when I was collecting data I was talking to the people that ran like the, you know, the, the Texas rivals site or something like that. And they were, they were pulling down. Um, I think they had at the time they had something like seven or 8,000 monthly subscribers paying, you know, $10 a month. Um, which if you add that up, that's a pretty significant amount of money. And honestly that had to have grown maybe not exponentially, but I think there's probably been a linear growth rate since then for a lot of these sites. And what they provide those people uh, is, you know, recruiting news and information about the teams, and they provide them with a, a relatively private place to commiserate and talk with other fans who are also subscribers uh, about the team. And, you know, I mean, a lot of those sites have been quite successful. Now, the the overarching business model that we've seen from, like, the Rivals Network or from Scout, I mean, Scout, I think, just got bought by 24-7, which, you know, there's there's some issues there, but... Um, the overarching business models haven't been great, but the individual sites seem to have done fairly well. So I'm not surprised that these particular sites that we're talking about, the DK sports side or the athletic or this new Boston group that's getting started, I'm not surprised that they're finding audiences because the locality of sports coverage and the fact that at the end of the day, you know, the internet's made ESPN like sports center coverage much less special because you can see pretty much anything you want that's going on in sports as it's happening. Um, what people really keep gravitating back to is the things they care about. And what they care about is being able to read local sports covered by local people who they know don't have some kind of national agenda 
uh, or they feel don't have some kind of national agenda against their team. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so that, that's yeah. kind of what I was thinking. Oh, no, it, it's fascinating. And about The Athletic, I was actually the, – the piece came out today. I, I talked to a reporter at Bloomberg about about The Athletic and about this idea um, and just kind of happy happenstance that it happened today. And I find this idea really, really fascinating on a lot of levels. You know, the quote that he used – the writer used from – oh, by the way, it's Chad Finn is the writer from Boston who was on the podcast. Chad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry Galen hates you. Um, anyway, I um, he doesn't hate you. Uh, I love you, Chad. I, I, I find <laughs> – I find the uh, I find the idea fascinating because you know the quote they used was you know no newspaper has ever said you know offered a five dollar a month subscription to the sports section instead of ten dollars for the whole thing it's always been bundled and so this is kind of like you know I, I I talked at length when I was talking to him about the whole you know this is kind of bringing the break the bundle idea to online this specific, to, to specific to sports journalism in a way yeah. that I don't that aside from rivals and scout that from a more journalistic standpoint rather than like a fan community standpoint, I think is what they're going for. Um, like I said, I, I hope these sites do well because you know, you want outlets for it. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, you know, there, 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 my, my concern on it or my, my concerns, God it sounds so heavy handed and it's not, but my, my thought on this is I think it's a great idea, but what I wonder for, for these sites from a, from a kind of an economic standpoint is I do wonder kind of what their, their break even or profit model is on subscribers, like how they're going for it. Because I think though, the, you know, I've read about these sites and, you know, I read their about pages and how much they charge for a month or whatever. Um, and I do love the idea of the lifetime subscription. You know, I think the Boston one is two ninety nine, So similar to the DK sport, the DK one in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I wonder what their break even is. I guess I think the, the the great promise of this and what what kind of the idea that's driving a lot of these sites is the we're not giving you clickbait. We're not trying to we're not doing hot takes. We're not going to do crappy stuff just to, to get a lot of clicks and stuff like that. We are going to give you high quality stuff, high quality writing, high quality reporting, high quality thinking about the, the, the sports teams you care about. And I think that, you know, that, that's certainly, that's, you know, that's speaking my language. And I think it speaks to a lot of what we want, you know, what a lot of us do want in sports journalism or, or kind of, you know, feel like, feel like is missing. But, but I, I think the biggest challenge these sites are going to face, you know, from a long-term perspective is what are they going to give you as a sports fan in that town that's worth your $30, $5 a month, your $30 a year that you're not getting at the daily newspaper, that you're not getting on ESPN.com, that you're not getting at Yahoo, that you're not getting on Rivals or message boards or on Twitter. And I'm not saying there's not, that there's not potential there because there absolutely is. Don't get me wrong. But I just wonder, like, because I'm a, you know, there's an athletic for Toronto. And I'm a Maple Leafs fan. I've kind of been tangentially following the Blue Jays this year, which is probably why they suck so bad. But, you know, I'm like, I don't know what I would get there from subscribing for $5 a month. That's worth that I would view long term as, yes, I want to keep doing this. I want to, you know, I'm getting value out of it. I think that, you know, for uh, consumers, I think that's a lot of it. You know, what am I? I'll pay you money. You know, that that's the great thing about the, I mean, to me, it's been, 
not that I'm going to get value on it, but I, this, this feels like money well spent. Netflix feels like money well spent to me. Hulu feels like money well spent to me. I don't mind the $8 a month or $10 a month because I'm getting a lot out of that. It's kind of like the, the idea that how people are very re- reluctant to pay for apps on the iPhone or on Android because it's like the, uh, I don't know if I want to pay $3 for this app or not um, without kind of giving a test row or whatever. And I don't know, I, I hope there, but, but I do wonder, you know, I think that's one of my big questions long-term is, are they going, you know, is this Boston site going to give me for $30 a month, what a Boston sports fan is stuff that's so good that a, that a Boston sports fan is going to pay that money every month or every year for it. I think, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I would look at it a little bit differently. I so the the what will they get for their money that would be worth the money that they would be spending that they won't get somewhere else. I think that the way you have to break it down is a little more fine than what you broke down there because I think from the national level almost every team's fans have beef with ESPN or with with any of the major outlets about the way that they cover their team. I mean, you know, maybe if you're the the Yankees, you don't have beef, but everybody else, it's like, come on. Uh, and right. certainly, you know, there's like West Coast teams and, and West Coast cities. I mean, their their teams don't get covered hardly at all unless it's the Lakers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and even then, it's 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 more personality driven as opposed to being like news driven. And I think that, um, you know, so from on the national scene, everything has to be done in such broad strokes that the local scene, uh, you know, the, or the, the, the local scene is able to give you the, the kind of minute details that a lot of fans really crave. Now, as far as how do you, like, what do you get with one of these sites that the local newspaper doesn't give? I mean, I get what you're saying, but then look at around at all the, the things we've talked about the last few years with local newspapers cutting staff for sports. I mean, the guy, you know, no, that's true. the Detroit Free Press, the guy that the beat writer for college football, I think just quit. Because he wasn't getting help from his sports editor. I mean, you know, I mean, like that, those sorts of financial decisions are getting made on a regular basis. You know, we've seen, um, we've seen Gannett papers, like, you know, make their whole staff, like, re-interview for their jobs and then cut 40% of them. And it's just like, you know, while you're seeing imprints in certain places, you know, that what, um, the Atlanta Journal Constitution is doing this like college football thing, but even that's like it's a specialty imprint focused on something that everybody's really interested in. So I look at this and I'd say, you know, it, it may not work in every city. I don't think it would work in a city like Indianapolis because uh, at the end of the day, there's there's just not that fervent of a fan base that also wants the minute details about like you know the Colts or the Pacers, but. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh certainly qualifies. I think Boston certainly qualifies. And I thought that the panel on the Deitch podcast, you know, correctly brought up that there's such a cynicism that, you know, Boston sports fans view ESPN with that. Yeah. I, I saw that on the, on the, I looked up the description to get Chad's name and, and I found that really interesting. So what did they say about that? I mean, is it just because it's well, ESPN reported Spygate and they think they're in for it? Because it's more than Spygate. Yeah. Because like as a, as a Bills fan, I look at that and I'm like, Really, ESPN is shafting the Patriots. Well, and that, it's what you—it's what you say. Like every hometown fan, you know, right. hometown fan and stuff. But I find this fascinating. I mean, I think the attitude—the attitude that they talked about about Boston fans in that podcast was that you know Boston fans felt like ESPN that you know just 
jumped on the Goodell bandwagon and refused to hear anything contrary to it. Um, and, you know, there was all of this, you know, this is, again, this podcast talking, but there was all of this evidence that pointed towards there not being, um, you know, this not being nearly as big of an issue as it was made out to be. And I think the Spygate coverage probably fell into that as well. Um, and, you know, Boston people tend to be very provincial about their sports anyway. So I think all that kind of feeds into it. And so, okay. but, but I think there's other cities that, that would fall into this category. I mean, certainly Washington, D.C. falls into this category. I think that uh, Dallas probably falls into this category. It, ironically, it's like most of the places that ESPN tried to create imprints, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like eight years ago when they were doing like the ESPN Chicago thing. Um, so I, I think, I, I just don't think it's possible, particularly with the direction ESPN's going right now where they've decided, okay, we're going to go a lot broader. We're going to go a lot more entertainment and, you know, personality driven. We, you know, we can't cover all the fine tuned stuff. And we also don't necessarily have the staff to cover on the writing side. And you've got Fox sports moving away from that as well. That's a void that's going to have to be filled by somebody. And the newspapers are just not in position to do it right now. So it makes sense that you would have either, you know, individual market-based things like uh, like the Boston thing or the DK sports thing in Pittsburgh or more, you know, like enterprising companies like The Athletic, who I think is going to be now in Toronto, Chicago, and San Francisco, uh, saying, you know what, we're going to jump into this space and we think we can make a go of it. It'll be interesting to watch how it plays out, but I think there's there's a huge market to expand. And, we, you know, we've talked about this a lot, Brian. The companies that decided to take a non-traditional approach because they weren't X, like they weren't a newspaper, so they felt handcuffed to the newspaper model, or they weren't, right. in the ESPN's case, a cable company, so they felt like everything had to revolve around their television property. Like the company that can go in and say, yeah, we're going to write stories, and we're going to do video, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. I really feel that in the next five years, there's a chance for that to work as a subscription model, because I think ultimately, at the end of the day, with so much overwhelming information out there, people want to be able to go to a place and say, I know I'm going to get information that matters to me about my team in that spot, and I'm going to be able to do it every day, and it's going to be interesting. And I, I think they've got a really good shot here. I think I think so, too. And I think from a kind of social construction of news standpoint, I'm interested to, to see, do the writers on this site, is it kind of what we consider traditional beat writering? Uh, writering, I just made up a word. Uh, is it kind of that, that idea of, you know, they cover a team like you've always covered a team, or are they – kind of leaving you know it, it'll be interesting like do they leave like that minutiae day-to-day stuff to like are they going to try to compete with Schefter for signings or the local you know newspaper beat writer for signings or are they going to take kind of a more broader bigger picture point of view I, I I don't know I'm not saying what's right what's wrong I'm just fascinated to see kind of how they approach the actual kind of day-to-day nuts and bolts of beat writing I think I think we found our next research study here I think so yeah so anyway, um, so let's jump off. Any any last thoughts on that before we move on to something else? No, but I love the phrase beat writing. I think I'm going to start using that. Put that in the title of the study. Okay, well there we'll you just, go. Yeah. We got it. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's. Uh, I wanted to talk about one of the things. So we had the Brickyard 400 here in Indiana this weekend. Uh, now let me before we start this, let me ask you: Where are you on zero to a hundred on the NASCAR fandom scale? I'm going to go about a three. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, are you aware that NASCAR is a sport? I understand that they drive cars, they turn left. I do know. 
some poor schmuck got kicked out of the got his pit pit pit, pit, pit pass removed because he dropped the sandwich at this thing. Yeah, I, yeah, there was some story along those lines. Come um, on, yeah, come on. Anyway, but I, I I I I am I am aware that it exists. I I I cannot speak in any fine tuned way about it, but that's not going to stop me. So let's do this. So. Um, it's actually interesting because you don't really need to know that much about NASCAR to, to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is, okay, so if you, if you think back to when we were young, and I mean, like, you know, when we were 10 or whenever, like, so back in the late 80s, early 90s, NASCAR really didn't have a national presence. Um, you know, the, you had the Daytona 500, which everybody knew about. Not that many people watched it. It was something that was on, and so you would watch it, but... The rest of NASCAR was this if, – if there was a foreign sport in the U.S. for a lot of people outside of the region where it was taking place, like it was hockey if you didn't live in the Northeast, and it was NASCAR if you didn't right. live in the Southeast. And, right. um, you know, and at the time, I mean, auto racing was still relatively popular. IndyCar was still pretty popular across the country. It was more of a boutique sport, you know, than, than like a serious challenger for a top four position, but it was still – uh, you know, I think something that the people were, you know, paying some attention to, they knew the drivers and so forth. And you didn't get a lot of that with NASCAR. There was a big sea change in the nineties with the popularity of NASCAR. And it went from being this somewhat obscure regional sport to within 10 years being, you know, a sport that was in serious contention for being considered maybe more popular than hockey. Certainly, right. uh, you know, certainly didn't approach the big three, but was, was in the mix for being the fourth sport. And it went along that way for a long time. And now things have really started to fall apart for them. Um, you know, from the standpoint of, of, of what's gone on, um, you know, this year alone, uh, I'll just quote some, some information here out of, actually, this was from last year. This is out of an, F, an SB Nation piece. But, um, you know, 22 cup races accumulated fewer total viewers of the 29 that can be compared to the previous year including 15 that plummeted by double digits in either total viewership ratings or both. Um, you know, and, and this is, this caused a lot of changes in the, um, the way that they set up the races. It caused a, a change in the way that they did points. Um, but it's not just the TV thing. I was continuing to quote from this piece, which is written by Jordan Bianchi. This was published uh, January 11th, 2017. The number of spectators watching in person has also fallen. The three publicly traded companies that operate all but two of the 23 tracks on the schedule reported decline in admission revenue from 2010 to 2015. Dover Motorsports Incorporated suffered a 51% decline. Speedway Motorsports, a 28% decline. The International Speedway Corporation, a 19% decline. Um, And... You know, not only are fewer people watching and attending, but those that do are primarily older and fall well outside of the 18 to 34 demographic coveted by advertisers. So anyway, I, I say all that because I think this is really fascinating. Um, and I, I'm, you know, full disclosure, I don't dislike NASCAR. I'm also not a big NASCAR fan. It's a sport that I pay attention to because I have to because of my job. But it's even in auto racing, I'm, I'm far more of like an open wheel racing guy than I am a, a NASCAR fan. That said, um, I think this may be our first really big popped sports bubble mm-hmm. uh, from a, from a, from a, 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 you know, just a fanship perspective, from a popularity perspective. And I think it's really interesting watching this process take place because, um, 
the you know i mean at the at, at the at its core the sport isn't tremendously different i mean it's still cars racing around uh in a circle for the most part a couple of tracks uh, accepted but it's also a situation where you're you're getting some churn in, in terms of like the drivers that are starting to retire tony stewart retired dale earnhardt jr is about to retire at the end of this year um you're not seeing huge names coming up you know through the ranks and immediately replacing them in terms of q score and you know, it's it's just weird that it's all kind of started to fall apart here over the last few years. Um, we've never really seen a sports bubble burst like this. Um, you know, I mean, certainly we've seen like, you know, baseball took a big nosedive after the strike in '94, but that was a that was kind of a self inflicted wound. This is this isn't a situation where NASCAR was like, hey, we want to get less popular. It just seems to be happening naturally in the marketplace. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, a couple of things from my, you know, status as a three out of 100 fan. Um, but again, I, I, I know enough, I, I follow NASCAR, you know, kind of sports, but sports enough to know. And you're right. It is amazing how it, how it, you know, kind of went from this new way, you know, new sport of the future and like this, you know, the world paying attention to, to NASCAR to really it, it, it kind of disappearing again. Um, a few thoughts, you know, probably uneducated thoughts, but I, I wonder if they expanded and tried to go too big, too fast. Like, did they expand the circuit? Did they expand more north and west than kind sure. of kind of a, as an NHL thing? I wonder if they pushed it too much where that's not sustainable. Like, it's always going to be popular in the southeast, obviously American southeast. But is it going to hold, you know, long-term fans in Dover, Delaware? And, and, and I've driven by that speedway when we used to go to, to Delaware on, on vacation, we just, and that's a massive speedway. Yeah. And like, is that, you know, the best way, you know, is that, you know, long-term success? I also do wonder if, like you said, the drivers who are coming up play a role in, in this and like, I, I, again, I might be way off, but it doesn't seem, it seems like the drivers, I mean, they're obviously very skilled drivers, but there's nothing particularly exciting about them. They, they, they kind it kind of feels like, like golf after tiger for a little bit where like it's a bunch of really good at people who are good at their sport. And, but I don't know, like Kevin Harvick and Jimmy Johnson, do they like, and get you ex- people who are not, you know, already NASCAR fans, do they get them into the sport the way like a Dale Earnhardt Jr. would because of name value and what happened with his dad or a Tony Stewart or, or any of those guys. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, working in kind of central and southwestern New York for so many years, like racing's huge in these areas. Like it's kind of where I got my introduction to it was work going, working the dirt tracks, going to races there and NASCAR being so popular on the, so popular in those areas. I mean, it was very, you know, it was not like the Northern boom of it. It was very popular even kind of before, right. Um, like the early two thousands. And I don't know, it, it, it is interesting. It, it is uh, like fascinating to see that big flash and it kind of, kind of, uh, so it, 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 I wonder if it's, if it's really bursting or if it's just kind of like more contracting, like back to its, like almost like reg- regressing to the mean, like going back to kind of its core area where it's still strong, but it kind of fell off from the auxiliary places well, where. I mean, maybe, I mean, you know, you, you brought up golf and golf's an interesting thing to compare it to. Like, you know, golf has been doing terribly. I think the Masters had its lowest TV ratings in 17 years this year. Um, you know, I, there's this, there was this piece out of golf.com where they noted that the the last Tiger Woods major, the, the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, 
Um, mm-hmm. The final round telecast that year drew a 10 rating. Um, and that was higher than the NBA finals game five. That's hard to imagine. Um, right. And since then, um, the, the PGA championship last year was down 55% from the previous, from uh, the previous year. And, you know, it's just like, that's, that's a tailspin, but that tailspin's almost entirely Tiger Woods. And, you know, the fact right. that Tiger Woods is no longer in the field. And so, like, if there's a bubble with golf, it's like it's a one-man bubble to a large degree. And I think everybody knew sure. that when Tiger was was no longer around, that that was going to be something that golf was going to have to confront. There's really no good answer to that. But NASCAR, I felt like, you know, NASCAR's popularity bubble blew up. You know, that I mean, they lost Dale Earnhardt Sr. In a, in a wreck in 2001. Um, you know, they've they've had, you know, Jeff Gordon – uh, you know, granted, Jeff Gordon retired here recently, so that maybe contributes to the decline a little bit. But they had so many different drivers, and they had you know they had so much sponsor penetration, and and so much track penetration in so many places across the country. I don't know. I don't know if it's a case that they expanded too quickly because everything seemed like it was going fine, and then yeah. and then things just started falling off. I'm I'm just it's it'll be interesting as we kind of look back at this. If you want to take golf and NASCAR combined. Is is this a Gen X thing, where uh, so as Gen X, you know, leaves the the you know that those seem to be like the sports that Gen X wanted to glob onto that weren't like the traditional sports, and right. and that would have happened. You figure, you know, golf got popular around ninety eight, NASCAR got popular like really popular around the same time. Is that the equation where as that generation got older? very little appealed to the millennials. And now that they're starting to enter into this prime demographic, they're just like, neither of these things does anything for us. Well, and it's interesting when you look at the timeline, like around late nineties, like baseball, I mean, it had its resurgence with the the steroid era and the home run ball, but that was still very much on a rebound. Not the, you know, the overall kind of game at the local level, I don't think was nearly as popular in the late nineties and early two thousands as it is now. Uh, and the NBA certainly went in, in, into a kind of a drop, around that time too. And the NBA has had a huge resurgence lately. Um, and so, yeah, you wonder, you know, are, you know, are people kind of going back to those traditional sports and, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about that. Yeah. This is a sport that, you know, I hadn't thought about NASCAR until you mentioned this as a potential topic and that's kind of the point, I think. Yeah, um, and that's. That, that. It, I mean, it was it was very apparent this week with the Brickyard. I mean, the Brickyard when it first started was a big deal. I mean, sold out yeah. crowds and everything. And I mean, if there were, I don't know what the official attendance numbers were, but if there were fifty thousand people in the stands, and they, keep in mind this is a speedway that holds three hundred thousand people, if there right. were 50, if there were fifty thousand people there at the end of that race yesterday, I would be shocked. So you're you're around that. So why do you think it is? I mean, just kind of generally from being in that area. I mean. I mean, is it, is I don't, it, I don't, that's the thing. I mean, I, a lot of people I know who were NASCAR fans are still NASCAR fans. It's like, I feel like the hardcores haven't gone anywhere. I just feel like mm-hmm. part of, okay. I think part of the issue, and I argue with the NASCAR people about this a lot. I think they've overcomplicated what should be a very simple sport. You know, this year they added this scoring system where after every one third of the race, Whoever's leading at that point gets a bonus point in the in the in the point standings. Um, you know, it's very like the how the points are decided is very odd. It's a it's a it's an auto racing circuit that has a playoff 
And if you win a race, you're automatically in the playoff. And then there's, but then like the, there's a separate process that you go through to determine who wins the series at the end uh, in in the chase. I, I just feel like you know as they gradually added things, it's like they made it overly complicated, and that does tend to turn off the more casual viewers. And as we've seen time and time again, the casual viewers are the ones that make or break right. um, your your commercial popularity. And that happens in music. It happens in movies. Um, the hardcores really don't matter that much. Um, you know, and if I tune in, just like in golf, if I tune in and there's nobody appealing or interesting golfing, I'm going to turn it off again and go do something else. In NASCAR, if I turn it on and I don't recognize drivers and I don't understand how the scoring works or why right. they're racing at Daytona again in July when they just raced there in February, um, eventually that wears down the audience to a point where it's just not that not that interested anymore. So I, but you know, I'll be honest, I'm, I, you know, I've read a lot of articles about this and the people at NASCAR don't seem to know how to stop it either. Like that the conclusion from almost everything's been, uh, no one knows how to stop this ratings decline or this attendance decline. And I don't know if there's a good answer at this point. So we do have one reader question, reader question, listener question, uh, Ryan Forrest. Uh, from up in my neck of the woods and formerly your neck of the woods. He needs Galen's thoughts on the new Star Trek show. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> well, I don't have a lot of thoughts yet. Um, okay. I, you know, I, I'll, you know, I need to, I, I need to, to take some time to really learn about it. I mean, I think it's interesting that this, this concept of Star Trek maintains life consistently over time. I mean, we just went past the the 50th anniversary of the uh I think actually the 50th anniversary of the first airing is is this September. Uh I think September 18th, 1966 was the first episode. Um and I loved the original series. Um I wasn't as huge of a fan of of Next Generation and then um I've been hit or miss with watching some of the other series uh that that have come up in the 90s and 2000s. I mean, look, the um you know the the idea behind it is interesting. Um, what is the idea behind? It? I didn't even know there was a new Star Trek series. Yeah, so. it's this thing called Star Trek Discovery. It's um, it's set a decade before the events of the original Star Trek series. Um, it it explores the Federation Klingon Cold War. I'm just quoting from the Wikipedia page right now. While following the crew of the uh, the USS Discovery, so. You know, I mean, I'll watch it. Uh, maybe you know, it's a it's a it's a fifteen episode first season. Um, you know, I, I I don't have a whole lot to say about it right now. I'd love to say that I do, but you kind of caught me blindsided there. I had not really started thinking about it too much. I saw that question from Ryan. I was like, "What am I going to say about this?" And I really don't know. <laughs> I I I will say this: I try to withhold judgment on almost everything. Um, until I see it because I've just been wrong so many times when I've jumped to a conclusion. I will say this. Uh, it's on CBS All Access. Um, they're going to debut it on CBS itself. And um, I don't know. I, I'm always worried about TV shows that aren't on a cable or you know some other non-network provider. Um, it, does, it does seem it's very easy to pull the plug on it. it there's not a, there's lack of investment. That feels like a lack of investment and confidence in it. Yeah, well, to I me. mean, I, it's also I think networks are so hamstrung by 
the conventions of, of having a network. I mean, it's, a, it's like the trade-off. It's like, do we want a, a show that could reach a mass audience and make lots of money, or do we want a show that is more niche? And the thing with Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek certainly has an audience. I just don't know if it can make it as a mass audience piece. And also, honestly, I think the idea behind Star Trek has always really needed a... Um, it's it's needed, you know, like an HBO treatment to it, or or some some kind of like you know, yeah. you know, non network attitude towards this is this is an art piece. It's like it's like the difference between. Did you ever see the 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 series Rome on HBO? I know of it, but I never saw it. You know, it's like I'm. You take Rome and you you try to think about it in any setting other than on HBO. And I mean, there's violence, there's nudity, there's swearing, there's all these things that you can't do on network TV. But but it was just such a vivid, vividly created drama. And you think about like the the real. If we, this is the golden age of television, we've talked about, and it's been going for about a decade. And you think about all of the shows that have really made us reimagine what television can be, and they've all come from that space. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know the 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 you know certainly breaking bad you know wasn't an hbo show but it was still a cable show and breaking bad and yeah, breaking bad and, and uh, mad men were hbo shows that were like uh they, they were hbo type shows just on amc right like they're right. very much in the mold of the sopranos and deadwood and all and that era yeah so that's what i worry about the most with this and maybe i'll be wrong maybe they'll do it right and maybe it'll be good and and i mean i think star trek's always been at its best when it's been pg you know when it's been something that can reach all ages but you know um i just uh, well i'm 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 cautiously optimistic but we'll see what happens so sounds good anyway one last thing then we'll go um i was thinking about this today why do we have lawns like as a concept or as yes. stuff we have to mow? As, as, as a concept. As a concept. Because I, I think about it like this. You know, we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the issues with the environment. We've got water shortages in many places. Uh, you know, we've seen controversies, certainly in California, where people have been told don't water your lawns. And then, you know. They water rich, their lawns. Rich, rich people flip out and it's like, well, no, we're going to water our lawns. Da, 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 da. It's like why haven't we come up with a, an acceptable societal replacement for lawns? Because they, they're a crap load of work. I don't know about you, but and I don't have a huge lawn. I mean, my, I've got a little under two tenths of an acre here, but it's a solid hour out of my day, out of my week, you know, to go mow the lawn and then to do trimming and all of that. Uh, you got to seed it. You got to, you got to spend money on it. You got to water it uh, when it gets too dry. Um, it's very hard to maintain, there's lots of random stuff that pops up in it that you didn't put there, um, and you know you're you know you're burning gas. You got a, you know internal combustion engine in many cases that's mowing the lawn, so you're polluting the atmosphere that way. If you're in a dry environment, you're wasting water on something that's just pretty to look at, but isn't really necessarily giving you a whole lot in return. Um, like like why haven't we? And I don't know what the answer is to this, but it just seems like having a lawn and maintaining a lawn, it, it's, it's really overblown within like the hierarchy. Cause if you don't maintain your lawn, like your HOA can fine you, you end up, you know, feeling like the black sheep of the neighborhood because your lawn is unsightly. It's not just that we have it. It's a, it, it's this huge social thing that we have to worry about as well. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a very kind of like masculine thing, like to, to take care of your lawn and to have a good lawn. Like that's a real powerful, I think guy thing. 
to, to do. I mean, I, well, I will say I've never watered my lawn ever. And I, I, I haven't done this because I, one of my baseball covering days, I was talking with a guy who was like a BP pitcher and uh, he worked at a golf course. It was like the groundskeeping at a grounds course. And he said, he told me like, never waste time watering your lawn. Like you have to water it at a, like the golf course, they have to basically water all the time to kind of keep it looking good. It's like, you're not going to do anything, basically wait for it to rain or you're just wasting water. And I've taken that to heart. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, you know, I feel like, you know, it's kind of like that ancestral um, social thing where we have, you know, especially it feels like a really American thing, but like, you know, you had your land and land ownership is such a powerful kind of driving historical social force in this country that, you know, this is kind of like how we maintain that and how we do that. Did, did you just break your, break your house? What happened there? I, I, I'm, I'm okay. My, the coast okay. is stuck to the can. Sorry. Ah, coasters will get you every time. Um, and why haven't we have a replacement for coasters? No, I just, anyway, but no, I, I, it, you know, it, it's funny because, like, yeah, what would we have instead of? But then it becomes, what do you have instead of it? Like, do you have the the Brady Bunch style astroturf? Um, do you have like sod that the, do they do you like create a sod that doesn't grow so it doesn't need water or mowing? But how do you create that and how do you lay it down? Um, you know, I don't know. I, mean, I I I don't have a good answer. I just feel like the the what we've got right now is it's too much work and it's okay. for, for, I say, like, I say, let your, let your, let your, 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 let your lawn go, man. The people before the, the house next door to me uh, got sold. They didn't mow their backyard and swear to God, it was knee high. Yeah. I, that's, that's, that's not a good look in the neighborhood though. There's like, no, so- no, 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 no. Well, yeah. Com- coming from me, who was calling the town saying, get somebody out here to right. mow the forest next door. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, I uh, I generally enjoy doing yard works, but not like in a fanatical like. I don't, and I don't hate it. Like, I mean, I have a lawnmower. I go out and mow every week, week and a half. I, you mm-hmm. know, I do trimming. I mean, I, it's like I don't hate it. It's actually I like the exercise. I just think it just seems weird that we haven't come up with something because this is a problem that large sections of the of the uh, the country don't deal with like if you if you live in an apartment in new york city you're not cutting the lawn like you're not cutting the lawn you know i mean it's just not a thing and it just seems like another thing that adds uh to to the workload uh, and the financial load like if you're in a position where you don't have time to do your lawn you got to pay somebody to do it you know 40 bucks a, a week or whatever to go come mow the lawn it's like that seems like money that could be spent towards something else Yep. Well, the worst is having a landscaper live across the street from you, like I do. So you want to set, you want you want peer pressure. I mean, they're incredibly nice, and they don't like race think about it. But you want to feel like incredible pressure live across the street from a landscaper, and it's like, ugh. I'll have to keep so that. So I can Yes. So anyway, I think that wraps it up for today. Uh, thanks to everybody for uh, writing in. Thanks to Ryan for the question. He had one on the YouTube channel as well. Um, and. Uh, Brian, thanks to you. Uh, sorry that you're back from vacation, but uh, enjoyed this as well. Any any final thoughts? No, if I have to be back from vacation, I'm glad I'm back back with you and with everyone listening. So, well, that, we we all appreciate that. Thank you so much. <laughs> anyway, thanks to all you folks who either watched us on YouTube or listened on the podcast. You can catch us on iTunes. You can catch us <laughs> on um, Twitter at Flipside Pod or at BP Moritz or at Doctor GC uh, for. 
Brian. I'm Galen. We'll catch you folks on the flip side. So long, everybody.